In his book, Pillars of Grace, Dr. Stephen Lawson traces the doctrines of grace down through the history of the church in order to demonstrate that these truths, these doctrines of grace, which are so often associated with the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, did not actually originate in the Reformation, but rather have formed the foundation of the historic Christian faith from the very beginning. And he does this by providing 23 chapter-length biographies of leading figures in church history from Clement of Rome, who died in the year 99, all the way to Calvin of Geneva, who died in the year 1564. 23 men whose lives and ministries and writings reveal that they were reformed long before the Reformation. Towards the end of the book, as Lawson gets into the days of the Reformers, such as Luther, Zwingli, Tyndale, Bullinger, and Calvin, he comes upon one particular figure that draws our attention this morning. Lawson writes, quote, As the Reformers held up the Word of God and taught it, supernatural light began to dawn over the European continent. Such light was especially needful in England. Knowledge of the Scriptures had all but vanished from the British Isles. The Bible was available only in Latin and only to the priests, but it was neither taught nor even understood. Although there were some 20,000 Catholic priests in England, it was said that most could not translate a simple clause of the Lord's Prayer from Latin into English. More than a century earlier, John Wycliffe had attempted to relieve this darkness by translating the Bible into English and distributing copies by means of the Lollards, which was the name given to the preachers whom he trained and sent out. But the church had brutally suppressed Wycliffe's efforts. Only a few hand-copied Wycliffe Bibles were available, and it could be fatal to possess one. In 1401, the English Parliament passed De Heretico Comburendo, in other words, the burning of heretics, a law which made it a crime to own or produce an English translation of the Bible and stipulated that those who did so would be burned at the stake. The unlawful teaching of the Bible in English was considered a crime punishable by death. In 1519, seven Lollards were burned at the stake for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English. A night of deep darkness covered England. End quote. It was into that deep darkness that God raised up a man by the name of William Tyndale, a man uniquely gifted for the task of bringing the Word of God to the English people in their own language. Tyndale was a brilliant linguist. He was a scholar who was proficient in eight languages. Catch that, eight. Hebrew, Greek, Latin, Italian, Spanish, English, German, and French. Tyndale was just a young man when when God thrust him into the work of reforming the English church. He studied at Oxford and Cambridge, earning advanced degrees from both institutions. And it was during his time at Cambridge that many of the works of Martin Luther began to make their way across the English Channel and were being circulated among the professors and the students 
there in the university, making Cambridge, in effect, the cradle of the English Reformation. In 1520, a group of Cambridge scholars began meeting in a small pub known as the White Horse Inn to discuss and debate these new reformational ideas that were coming out of Luther's Germany. This group included men like Robert Barnes, Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, Miles Coverdale, Thomas Cranmer, Thomas Bilney, Robert Clark, John Frith, John Lambert, and many believe William Tyndale. It was Bilney who had originated this group. Bilney had been converted a few years earlier while reading a copy of Erasmus's Greek New Testament, and he seems to be the one that was responsible for gathering up these other group of students who were training for the priesthood and to bring them to the White Horse Inn and leading them to embrace these Reformed doctrines. These men that met in that inn became the leaders of the English Reformation, and nine of them died as martyrs for the Protestant faith. Tyndale, who was himself an ordained Catholic priest, grew increasingly aware of England's need for the Scriptures. During one particular dinner, a local priest asserted that we had had better be without God's laws than without the Pope's laws, to which Tyndale responded, I defy the Pope and all his laws, and if God should spare my life many years, I will cause that a boy that drives the plow shall know more of the Scriptures than you. From this point on, Tyndale set about the task of translating the scriptures into the English language. He first tried to work from within the church. He sought the church's approval for his work, but he was denied. And so he resolved that if he was going to accomplish this monumental task, he would have to be free from both English authority and Roman authority. And so he left England in 1524 and he sailed to Germany apparently staying in Wittenberg, that's Luther's hometown, before traveling to Cologne where he would finish his translation of the New Testament in 1525. After some initial trouble finding a publisher, he finally found a printer in Worms, Germany, who was willing to publish his English New Testament, and together they produced 6,000 copies. That same year, Tyndale began to smuggle those copies of the English New Testament into England, hidden in bales of cotton. A secret society of German and English Protestants aided him in this endeavor, and before long, Tyndale's New Testament was scattered throughout England. However, the Catholic authorities soon became aware of Tyndale's translation, and they attempted to destroy and to stamp out all of the copies, making it a serious crime to buy, sell, or even handle one. Discovered copies were publicly burned. During the next seven years in Europe, seven years in which Tyndale was constantly moving, he was in exile and he was in hiding, yet he was not, he was not uh, lazy. He taught himself Hebrew. He translated the entire Pentateuch into English. And in 1529, he revised his New Testament for increased accuracy. It was also during this time that Tyndale suffered a shipwreck off the coast of Holland in which many of his writings, including that new translation of the Pentateuch that had yet to be published in which he didn't even have a second copy, was destroyed. Years of work 
fall to the bottom of the North Sea. What's Tyndale's response? He just starts over again from scratch. For 12 years, the Catholic authorities and the English government were unable to find Tyndale, who spent time hiding throughout Europe in the homes of sympathetic Protestants. But in 1535, a man named Harry Phillips from England set sail for Antwerp, found Tyndale, befriended him, and then betrayed him by luring him into a narrow alley where he was ambushed by soldiers and arrested. Tyndale spent the next year and a half languishing in a dungeon of the Vilvord Castle near Brussels. And it was during this time that Tyndale wrote another work entitled Faith Alone Justifies Before God, which defended the Reformation doctrine of sola fide. It was during the winter of 1535 that Tyndale, from that dungeon in the castles in Brussels, wrote to the Marquis of Bergen, requesting, quote, a warmer cap for I suffer greatly from cold, a warmer coat, a piece of cloth, too, to patch my leggings. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts are also worn out, end quote. He also requested, quote, a lamp in the evening. It is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark. In August of 1536, Tyndale finally stood trial, where he was charged and condemned as a heretic. His offenses were stated as following, believing in the doctrine of justification by faith alone, believing in the total depravity of the human soul, denying that there is a purgatory, and denying the intercession of Mary and the saints, and denying that Christians should pray to them. Tyndale was publicly excommunicated from the church and handed over to the secular authorities for punishment with the sentence of death. It is said that while awaiting his execution, the church sent in a steady stream of priests and monks to visit his cell in order to harass him and to call upon him to recant. And I'll let Stephen Lawson tell the rest of the story. William Tyndale was executed on October 6th, 1536. A large crowd gathered at the southern gate of the town, held back by a barricade. In the circular space, two beams were raised in the form of a cross. At the top was a strong iron chain. Brush, straw, and logs were piled at the base. At a set time, the procurer general, who was the emperor's attorney, sat down with the other officials. The crowds parted as the guards brought Tyndale out. Tyndale was allowed a moment to pray and then was urged one last time to recant. When he refused, his guards tied his feet to the bottom of the cross and fastened the chain around his neck. The brush, the straw, and the logs were packed around him and gunpowder was added. It was at that moment that Tyndale cried his famous last words, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. When the procurer general gave the signal, the executioner quickly tightened the noose, strangling Tyndale. The procurer general then handed a lighted wax torch to the executioner who lit the brush and the straw. The gunpowder exploded, blowing up Tyndale's corpse. What remained of the limply hanging burnt body then fell into the glowing fire. Why should be the question that we ask. Why would William Tyndale give up his entire life, spend 12 years in hiding, followed by a year and a half in a dark 
damp dungeon, enduring the cold of northern European winters, eventually succumbing to execution by strangling before being burned at the stake. Why would he do that? It's because he lived and breathed the truths that Jesus states in Mark 13. Last week, we ended part one of our study of this chapter by focusing upon verses 9 to 13 and Jesus' prediction of the persecution, proclamation, and perseverance of the church. Because the immediate fulfillment of Jesus' words transpired in the first 40 years after he spoke them, between A.D. 30 and 70, when Jerusalem and its temple were destroyed, I showed you last week how Jesus' words were fulfilled first and primarily in the lives of the apostles and of the early church. But I begin this morning with the story of William Tyndale in order to demonstrate that those persecutions, that proclamation of the gospel, and that perseverance of the saints did not cease with that first generation. They did not end with the early church. Look down at the text. Look down at verse 9. William Tyndale was delivered over to councils and was beaten by the religious authorities. Look at verse 12. William Tyndale was betrayed by a close friend. Verse 13. William Tyndale was hated by the word, world and was put to death for the sake of Christ. And Tyndale's experience has been repeated by countless Christians over the past 2,000 years. In fact, this entire age between the first and second comings of Christ are marked by these signs of tribulation that we studied last week. Though in the prophetic perspective, Jesus' words looked to be fulfilled in the judgment of God which fell upon Jerusalem and its temple in the year 70 A.D., That judgment upon the temple was but a type and shadow of the future and final judgment that is coming upon the world at the end of the age at the return of Christ. Therefore, the signs which Jesus says will mark this age before the destruction of the temple will continue to mark this age before the destruction of the world. In other words, as we saw last week, we live in the last days. 1 John 3.18, we are those upon whom the end of the age has come, 1 Corinthians 10.11, 1 Peter 4.7. This is the age of tribulation, John 16.33, Acts 14.22, 1 Thessalonians 3.3. Therefore, the call of Christ to the church today is the same as his call to the church to whom he first spoke. That is, it is the one who perseveres to the end who will be saved. So these words that we're studying this morning, they are for our perseverance unto salvation. That's why we prayed at the beginning that God would cause these words to take deep root within our heart in order that we would not be disturbed when these signs of the tribulation occur all around us, but rather would remain steadfast and firm with an unshakable hope in Christ and in his gospel until the day when we see him coming on the clouds with power and great glory. 
Last week, we explored the structure of the end of the age in verses 1 through 4, and the signs of the end of the age in verses 5 through 13. This week, we begin with verses 14 to 23, a passage which speaks of a great sacrilege which will also mark the end of the age, a sacrilege which Jesus calls the abomination of desolation. Let's look together at verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Which parenthetically shows us that Jesus anticipated that these words would be written down and would be read by the church until he returns. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. All right, even though these verses are notoriously difficult to interpret, I'm not saying that Mark 13 is an easy passage of Scripture. It's not. It does, however, seem to me that what Jesus is speaking of is a final climactic act of sacrilege that initiates the destruction of the temple in its immediate fulfillment in AD 70, and at the same time, he speaks of a final climactic sacrilege that will initiate the judgment that's going to come upon the world at the end of the age at his second coming. So let's walk through these verses and see if we can unpack something of Jesus' meaning. The, The thing that we need to start with, the phrase that we need to start with, is the abomination of desolation. Everything builds off of that. So what is this abomination of desolation? Well, the term originates in the prophecy of Daniel. It occurs in Daniel 9, 27, 11, 31, and 12, 11. And in Daniel's prophecy, the abomination of desolation finds its fulfillment in the events of 168 B.C., when the Seleucid ruler Antiochus IV Epiphanes desecrated the temple. The events surrounding this desecration are described for us in the apocryphal books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees. All right, let me tell you about Antiochus. Antiochus was a wicked Greek ruler who had just suffered a humiliating defeat at the hands of the Romans down in Egypt. He had, he had taken his armies, he had marched down to Egypt, intending to conquer that territory. And when he, when he arrived there, he found a Roman army waiting for him. And there was a Roman ambassador who went out to meet him in the sands of Egypt. And he, he literally, this is one of the great moments in history, he literally drew a circle 
around Antiochus and he said, before you leave this circle, I need an answer from you as to whether or not you will retreat. Because if you do not give me the answer of retreat, if you do not turn around, take your armies and march them back home, this will be considered a declaration of war upon the Roman Empire. And Antiochus had no choice. And so he takes his armies and he begins to march them back towards Antioch. But on the way, he decides to take out his humiliation, to take out his wrath upon the Jewish people and upon Jerusalem. His persecution of the Jewish people was unbelievably severe. He forbade them to circumcise their children or to offer Levitical sacrifices, ordering instead that pigs be sacrificed. He set up a brothel in the temple chambers, just like the cult prostitutes in the pagan temples scattered throughout Greece. But the supreme sacrilege was when he erected a statue of Zeus upon the altar in the temple and sacrificed a pig upon it. This was understood by all Jews to be the abomination of desolation of which Daniel spoke. This sacrilege caused the faithful Jews to abandon the temple until they successfully drove out the Seleucids and reconsecrated the holy place, an event that is commemorated each year in the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah. It was a terrible bloody time in Jewish history. But evidently, according to Jesus, history was going to repeat itself. Jesus says there will be another abomination of desolation, which will evidently inaugurate Jerusalem's destruction. Trying to identify exactly what this particular iteration of the abomination of desolation was is notoriously difficult. It doesn't seem to be a reference to the Roman general Titus or his legions entering into Jerusalem and entering into the temple because by the time the legions broke through the walls of Jerusalem following their long siege, it would have been far too late for anyone to escape, which is exactly what Jesus here commands of the faithful living within Jerusalem. He tells them, when you see the abomination of desolation, then flee to the mountains. Others have speculated, and I think they're right, that what Jesus speaks of here refers to events near the beginning of the Jewish revolt, which began in the year 66 AD. What happened in that year was that Jewish zealots, these are ultra-nationalist Jewish militia folks, they occupied the temple thus defiling the Holy of Holies by their presence, and they committed acts of murder within the temple confines. Their sacrilege reached a climax when in the winter of 67 and 68, they declared, and I'm not even joking, they declared a clown by the name of Phani to be the high priest of Israel. These events are recorded for us by the Jewish historian Josephus in his book Jewish Wars. Now, there's historical evidence that the Christians, the church in Jerusalem living in those days, interpreted those events at the beginning of the Jewish revolt to be the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy, and they got out of Dodge. They left en masse from Jerusalem and headed through the mountains of Judea across the Jordan River into the region known today as Jordan in a town called Pella. The early church historian Eusebius, writing in the early, third, or, uh, early fourth century, wrote, quote, Before the war, 
The people of the church of Jerusalem were bidden in an oracle given by revelation to men worthy of it to depart the city and to dwell in a city of Perea called Pella. To it, to it, those who believed in Christ migrated from Jerusalem. Once the holy men had completely left the Jews and all Judea, the justice of God at last overtook them since they had committed such transgressions against Christ and his apostles. Divine justice completely blotted out that impious generation from among men, end quote. So I think that's the event of which Jesus speaks in verses 14 to 24. The church in Jerusalem, remembering Jesus' warning, which is found in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, They fled Judea. When they saw the temple being defiled, when they saw the Jewish zealots committing acts of murder in the temple, when they saw that a revolution was beginning and they knew that the Romans were going to come and they were going to put this down violently, they remembered what Jesus had said to them and they got out of Jerusalem. They fled Judea to the mountains of Jordan and they did so in a hurry. Josephus says that they left like swimmers deserting a sinking ship, which sounds very much like the description of verses 15 to 18. When the one on the housetop should flee by the outside staircase and not return to his house for his belongings, and the one in the field should not go back for his cloak, and the pregnant or nursing women will have obvious difficulty with the long and arduous journey and that they all should pray that this doesn't happen in the winter when the rivers and the gorges are swollen with water and difficult to cross. So when they saw the abomination of desolation, the church of Jerusalem heeded Jesus' words. They fled Jerusalem because the abomination of desolation was the sign that Jesus had given them that the judgment of God was about to fall and Jerusalem and its temple would be utterly destroyed. And in the year 70 AD, that happened. As Jesus said in verse 2, not one stone was left upon the other. So that's the fulfillment of verses 14 to 24 in the near fulfillment with with, uh, reference to the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Now here's the question. Do these verses, do they have reference also to the ultimate fulfillment of Mark 13, which will happen in the destruction of the world at Christ's return at the end of the age? The answer is yes. There is a future fulfillment of this passage for the church of the last 2,000 years. And I think it's what Paul speaks of in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica and says, Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, now he's talking about the day of the Lord. He's talking about the, the second coming of Christ. That day will not come unless the rebellion, literally the apostasy, comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked by entering into another 
difficult passage. Mark 13 is difficult enough, right? It's got enough to throw at us. We don't need to reach in and start trying to exegete another one. All I'm going to say is that sounds very similar to Jesus' description in Mark 13. Evidently, there is coming another abomination of desolation, which Paul identifies here as when a man of lawlessness, the man of lawlessness, will enter into the temple of God, which I interpret to be the new covenant church on the basis of texts like Ephesians chapter 2 and 1 Peter chapter 2, and he's going to exalt himself as God. In other words, he's going to proclaim himself to be the second coming of Christ. And this will lead to a mass apostasy from Jesus. I think this is what is alluded to by Jesus in Mark 13, 21, and 22, where he says, and then, okay, after this abomination of desolation, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders, which Paul says the man of lawlessness will, provo- will perform in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. What Jesus prophesies then, and Paul does the same in 2 Thessalonians 2, is that masses of people at the end of this age, masses of people from within the visible professing church will follow after this man of lawlessness, but not the elect. Look how cautious Jesus is in verse 22. Look how cautious he is with his words. So as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. But it is not possible. As Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.11, for God by his power will keep his people from following after this strong delusion that will come forth from this man of lawlessness. But after the tribulation of those days, even though they will be terrible, as they were during the siege of Jerusalem prior to its fall, there is coming an end. Josephus records that the tribulation of those days, prior to the destruction of Jerusalem and the, and the destruction of the temple, he records that they were horrific. People starved to death within the city. They roamed the streets, he says, like phantoms before finally collapsing and dying, and, and the men would come and fling their bodies up over the wall. Jesus says, in fact, if the Lord in his mercy had not cut short those days, none would have been spared. The same thing will be true in the final fulfillment. I do think that even though we are in the middle of an age of tribulation in which the signs of verses 5 to 13 will recur as birth pangs throughout this age, I do think keeping with that birth pangs analogy or metaphor, I do think that there will come a a phase of active labor in which things will get unbelievably intense. Mothers who have gone through natural labor understand what this means. If this thing doesn't come to an end, I don't know how I'm going to make it. I don't know how I'm going to be able to endure it. And Jesus says the same things. If God hasn't, hadn't cut those days short, no flesh would have been spared. 
but for the sake of the elect, he will cut those days short. Evidently then, I just want you to look at verses 21 and 22. Evidently then, Jesus expected his church to go through that period of active labor, which we like to call the tribulation, in order to separate it from the tribulation that marks this age. Evidently, then, Jesus wasn't a dispensationalist. Evidently, Jesus didn't believe in a rapture of the church that was going to magically whisk the church away before things got so bad that the days needed to be cut short for the sake of the elect. The Bible does not teach some escapist rapture theology in which God is going to spare his church from the tribulation. That's the exact opposite point of Mark 13. Mark 13 is not, don't worry about the tribulation because you won't be there. Mark 13 is, be on your guard. Behold, I have told you all things ahead of time so that you will be prepared for it when it comes. That's the point of Mark 13. Don't be surprised When these things come, behold, I have told you all things ahead of time. Why? So that you can be a spectator of these things from heaven? No, that you might persevere in faith to the end when you see those days cut short by the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds with power and great glory. That is the event that's going to bring those days to an end. The final tribulation at the end of the age will be terrible, but God will cut it short for the sake of his elect, his church. And how will he cut it short? By the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out his angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the four ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. It's interesting the way this comes immediately after the warning against the false Christs and the false prophets that Jesus says to ignore. Because in contrast to the false Christs and the false prophets who will arise in order to deceive many, Jesus says, when I come back, it's going to be unmistakable. Verses 24 to 27 are Jesus' reasoning why we should not be deceived when false Christs and false prophets arise. Because unless they come on the clouds in power and great glory, attended by the hosts of heaven amidst cosmic and celestial unheaval, upheaval, they're not the genuine thing. In this passage, Jesus describes his return By pulling together, reaching into the Old Testament, pulling together a host of Old Testament prophecies which speak of the activity of God on the great and dreadful day of the Lord and applying all of them to himself. Look at what he does. The darkening of the sun and the moon, the stars falling from heaven, the powers of the heavens being shaken. That comes from Joel 2.10 and 3.15. And all of that points to the fact that when God in Christ comes on the last day, it's going to mean the disintegration of the cosmos and the destruction of this present created order. 
the image of the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. That comes from Daniel 7, 13 and 14, where Daniel sees the Son of Man ascending, ascending on the clouds, and he comes before the Ancient of Days who is seated upon the throne, and he receives from the Ancient of Days glory, dominion, and an everlasting kingdom along with the worship of the nations, thus showing that Jesus saw his second advent at the, of, as the outworking of that gifting of a kingdom that was given to him upon his ascension. Then, the imagery of the great harvest in which Jesus sends out his angels to gather the elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven comes from a whole host of Old Testament passages, I mean Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and others, in which God promises to gather his scattered people who have been in exile throughout the earth and to bring them home to the land of promise. The point of verses 24 to 27 is that Jesus gathers together the entire eschatological hope, that is the entire end-of-the-world hope of the Old Testament, And he unites all of those prophecies in himself, declaring that they will all be fulfilled by his return at the end of the age when this present age of tribulation reaches its climax. It's an astounding prophecy. It's an astounding thing for Jesus to say, particularly particularly before his death and resurrection, because it means that Jesus is not a means to an end. He is the end for which the world was created. All of creation, all of history, all of salvation, according to Jesus, is going to find its consummation in the crucified, risen, ascended, and returning Christ. He is the one that will bring all of history to a close. He is the one that will bring this cosmos to an end. He is the one who will gather God's elect to himself. Now here's the question of the text. Are you going to be among them? How will you witness the return of Christ on the last day? Will you witness the coming of Christ as your Savior and your King who is coming to gather you to himself? Or will you witness his return as your judge and your executioner who is coming to execute God's wrath upon your sin? The answer to that question is going to depend on how you are related to Jesus in this intervening day of grace. But more on that in just a moment. The final two paragraphs of Jesus' discourse deal with the secret or the mystery of the end of the age. Now again, our, our near, far, primary, ultimate structure is going to help us understand the rest of Mark 13. The first paragraph, verses 28 to 31, speaks of the timing of the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem, which, according to Jesus, is predictable. So he tells his disciples, I want you to look at the signs, and you will be able to predict the coming of that destruction with enough accuracy to get out of Jerusalem and flee to the mountains. But then in the second paragraph, verses 32 to 37, Jesus is speaking about the timing of his coming at the end of the age, which he explicitly says is not predictable. And so all we have to do then is just stay in a state of constant readiness. 
So let's look at these verses, and I'll show you why I think this. Look at verses 28 to 31. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That's your big hint, by the way, that he's talking about something near. This generation, speaking of you all who are hearing this, this will not pass away until these events take place. That should be your clue. We're talking about Jerusalem, the destruction in 70 AD. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So in this first paragraph, Jesus expects his disciples to be able to look at the signs which he has just told them and discern the times and the seasons, just like all Israelites could discern the seasons by looking at the fig tree. When the fig tree becomes tender, when it puts out its leaves, it means that summer is right around the corner. Even so, says Jesus, when they see the signs which he's laid out before them in verses 5 to 23... They should know that he is near at the very gates. And I would take that he to be a reference to Rome, and in particular its Roman general Titus, who led the destruction of the city and the dismantling of the temple. So Jesus is exhorting his disciples, he's exhorting his church, to discern the signs which he has spoken to them and to get out of Jerusalem to the refuge and safety of the mountains before judgment and destruction falls. Okay? He then tells them that this generation will not pass away until all these things come to pass. And of course, he was right. Forty years exactly passed between his prediction and their fulfillment. Jesus then puts an emphatic point on the end by declaring that his word is infallible and enduring and, and eternal. In other words, they should heed his promise because it is not an empty threat, but a declaration of what will certainly come to pass. That's verses 27 to 30, or 28 to 31. But then... As he's done throughout this passage, Jesus moves beyond that initial fulfillment to the end of the age and to his second coming. And with reference to his second coming, you will notice that he is far more vague. In fact, Jesus declares that the timing of his return is a mystery even to him. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. Do you see how that's different from saying, look at the fig tree and discern its signs? You're going to be able to tell when this is coming. And then he turns and, and, he, and with reference to his second coming, he says, you're not going to know it. You're not going to know when the master of the house comes back. So you, the wise servant, therefore, stays alert and busy and fulfills his commission so that when the master does return, he will not be found negligent and unfaithful. Now, like I did last week, I'm going to apologize. I had a speech teacher, my first 
my first uh, class I ever took in college was speech at 8 o'clock on Monday morning with Dr. Derryberry. And Dr. Derryberry had one rule above all other rules for giving speeches, and he says, you never, ever, ever apologize for what you've said or for what you're about to say, because if it's bad, they'll know it anyway, and if it's not, you don't want to clue them into the fact that it was. I'm going to break his rule, and I'm going to say, I know that detailed prophecy and exegesis, like what we've done the last two weeks, is not everybody's jam. I know that we have been very technical as we've been working through Mark 13. I'm not apologizing for being technical because it's a technical passage of Scripture. It's hard to interpret. It requires that we think deeply about these things. But I don't want it to stay up in the, up in the realm of just being an intellectual exercise and in our curiosity and, and wanting to have all of our our eschatological T's crossed and our I's dotted so that we'll, we'll know the order of the timing of the end times. Jesus anticipated and expected and commanded that these words be intensely applicable and intensely relevant to his church throughout this age. So I want to close this morning and all of Mark 13 by asking, what is that relevance and what is that application? What is your takeaway from Mark 13? And I have three. Number one, I want you to notice that the judgment that is to come at the end of the age is as certain as the judgment which has already been meted out in 70 A.D., Jesus speaks of them as one event. Therefore, if one happened, we can be certain that the second will happen. Therefore, we must flee that judgment, not by fleeing to the mountains. There will be be no refuge in mountains on the day that Christ returns. There is only one sure, safe refuge for sinners in the day of God's wrath, and that is in Christ himself. Therefore, if you are here and you are not in Christ, you are still exposed to the wrath of God when it falls upon the earth on that last day. So let me urge you to flee to the refuge who is Jesus. Ever since A.D. 70, the church has had the benefit of historical fulfillment to help us understand Mark 13. What I mean by that is that we know now that the destruction of Jerusalem did not mark the end of the world. 2,000 years have elapsed. But rather that Jesus' words had a near fulfillment and they have a far fulfillment. And that there is an intervening age between those two fulfillments during which the signs spoken of by Jesus will recur as birth pangs, increasing in intensity and frequency and leading up to the trauma and the violence of delivery, followed by the joy of new birth and new life in a new heaven and a new earth. And I think that God's purpose in structuring the end of the age in this way is that we might be able to look back on the certainty and the precision which with with which Jesus' words were fulfilled, and have confidence that the same certainty and the same precision will be applied to his coming at the last day. 
His future coming in salvation is as certain as his past judgment upon Jerusalem. Therefore, we must waste no time in being reconciled to God through repentance and faith in Christ. How do you flee to the refuge? You repent and you believe. This is the day of mercy. This is the day of grace. This is the day of the Lord's salvation. Judgment is coming, it is sure, and it is swift. And so I plead with you to flee from the wrath that is to come. There is coming a day when not one stone of this earth will be left standing upon another. So flee that coming day of wrath and flee to Christ who is the only safe and sure refuge for sinners in the day of judgment. Christ died in order to take away our sin and to remove the wrath of God from all those who believe. And he rose again in order to give new hope and new life to all who would turn to him in repentance and faith. And so, if that's you, do that this morning. Run to Jesus Hide in the refuge of his atoning blood and his righteousness and cling to him while you watch all of these signs of the end of the age transpire until he comes back. Secondly, the end will be preceded by a time of tribulation. Therefore, we must persevere in faith. Okay, Jesus has told us all things beforehand so that we can be on our guard. What has he told us? Let me just recap. He's told us that this age will be marked by false Christs and false prophets peddling false doctrine to false believers. He's told us that political unrest will mark this age as we can anticipate wars and rumors of wars. He's told us that this age will be marked by natural disasters as all of creation groans awaiting the revelation of the sons of God. And he has told us that this age will be marked by the hatred of the world, the betrayal by our friends and our family, and by the persecution of the church. Jesus has warned us in advance of these things so that, verse 7, we would not be alarmed. Verse 9, we would not be caught off guard. Verses 5 and 21, we would not be led astray. But rather, verse 13, would endure to the end and so be saved. So it is imperative, church, that you know that your life in this age will be marked by tribulation and trouble, by persecution and by pain. But all of it is in accordance with God's sovereign plan and he will bring you safely through as you trust to him, look to him, and cling steadfastly to him. So your number one application, believer, is cling to Christ and cling to his word no matter what. Number three, the delay in Christ's coming is the result of God's patience. Therefore, we must preach the gospel to all nations. Now, someone may ask, why does Jesus delay in his return? Why has he waited 2,000 years and counting and still 
He does not execute his righteous judgment and come and gather his elect unto salvation. Well, you would not, if that's a question you're asking, you would not be the first one to ask that question. Peter fielded that question in 2 Peter chapter 3, and here was his response. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you because he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In other words, it is the patience and kindness of God that delays his judgment. And I think it is this patience and kindness that lies behind Jesus' statement in Mark 13.10 when he says that the gospel must, it must first be proclaimed to all nations and then the end will come. That is the responsibility of the church in this age. That is the task which the master has appointed to his servants before he went away. That is our appointed task if we are faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And so when the master returns, the question is, will he find you awake alert and faithful about his business of proclaiming the coming judgment and the kindness and patience of God to your neighbors and to the nations, or will he find you asleep, lulled into some sort of materialistic coma by all of the treasures of this world? Think, beloved. You are found in Mark 13 in one way or the other. You're here. You're in this chapter. So I exhort you with the testimony of William Tyndale. Find yourself in Mark 13. View your life through the lens of Jesus' words to the church. That's what Tyndale did. He knew he lived in the age of tribulation. He knew that he was liable to betrayal, to persecutions, and even to death for the sake of Christ. That's why he wasn't shaken when those things happened. He knew that it was his task upon this earth to testify to the gospel of Christ and to seal that testimony with his blood. That's what it looks like to live in these last days. That's what it looks like to be one of those upon whom the end of the age has come. Mark 13 is your past, and it is your present, and it is your future, and it is your destiny. The end of the age is upon us, beloved, and we must be ready. Are you? 